Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group and hosted by cardiologist and top medical researcher, Dr. Michael Corin. Hello, my name is Dr. Michael Corin, and I'm delighted to be part of this wonderful series with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Neil Sangvi, who is an electrophysiologist who is talking with me about atrial fibrillation. And this is a series called Two Docs Talk AFib, part of our MedEvidence platform. And we've been having just a fabulous and fun and educational discussion about managing atrial fibrillation. And in the last segment, we talked a lot about a hypothet hypothetical soccer player who was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation that had a lot of issues with regard to anticoagulation and managing the arrhythmia and ultimately making sure that this person did not miss penalty kicks on the field because of atrial fibrillation, right. which was the proximal cause of, of his referral. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so, so Neil is a, he's a national expert. He's been on a lot of different panels from, you know, different venues around the country talking about rhythm issues. And he's the medical director of the heart rhythm section at Flagler Hospital here in Northeast Florida. So very, very well versed in this and, and just a wonderful speaker and somebody that can help us really understand these issues. So with that, Neil, we were talking in the last segment about the decision between anticoagulation and using a left atrial closure device. And this is a, an area where there's a lot of current research going on, and, and maybe you can help us start to explore that. Oh, so absolutely. Give, give us your perspective. Yeah, you know, uh, I think the arena of stroke prevention in AFib is, is a tremendously large area because of the issues, obviously the morbidity for the patient and the suffering that they suffer, and the cost to, you know, the health system in managing these patients. And so we are trying to do the best we can to help protect these patients and so right now there's two strategies on managing AFib patients, right? There is the patient who needs to be on some form of anticoagulation. We talked about these NOACs that are currently existing, warfarin back in the day that tended to be the only agent that's out there. Um, and, you know, clinical trials, uh, I think, Mike, you're, you're involved with some of these, right? In, in I've terms done a of few in my day. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit, right? Involving uh, alternative ways of looking at uh, delivery of anticoagulation for these patients. And, and, um, and so, you know, I think the area of research is ripe in this arena. There, there's some, um, monoclonal antibodies that I believe that are uh, being explored right now in this arena to see if there's easier ways of delivering, um, anticoagulation. So right now we're, we're required to dose patients on a daily or twice daily basis, uh, with, uh, with a regimen to try to help get them the anticoagulation that they need. And that comes with its own baggage, right? You got to remember, I got to take my pill. Did I take it today? Did I take it right. yesterday? Uh, and so some ease of therapy might be uh, an issue. And so there's research going on in that arena. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to dive in a little bit uh, on the other side of it right now, which is that left atrial appendage closure, which we were talking about that pouch closure. Um, as of, as of today, it's indication is mainly for patients who are considered to be not candidates for long-term anticoagulation because of risk profiles right? That mm -hmm. patient that falls, that patient who's active. Right. But what we're learning is that its effectiveness is quite powerful and that perhaps it really ought to be not simply meant for the patient who's excluded from anticoagulation, but rather a choice for the patient who doesn't want anticoagulation, right? right? So, so the patient who says, yeah, I understand I have a risk of stroke and I need something to treat that risk. Perhaps I could be considered for this in, uh, implantation of a device versus being on a day-to-day -day anticoagulant. So 
So the Watchman device, which is a Boston Scientific device, they have a trial called the Champion trial right now, which is enrolling patients, looking at uh, effectively patients who are considered for anticoagulation and, and then randomizing them to say, okay, you stay on anticoagulation, you get the Watchman, and we're going to see what happens. And the goal is to show that the rate of stroke is no different whether you are on a blood thinner every day or if you got the device put in, you know? Right. So that's going on, yeah. you know, as as a as a as a therapy. I'm going to break that down yeah. a little bit more with you uh, because okay. you brought up a lot of really really good uh, things and in research questions, and I have to prevent myself from getting too nerdy here. But um, a little bit of background will probably be helpful for people who are listening in on us. So, just to remind everybody in the medical field and people in the non medical field is that we develop clots through this coagulation cascade. And there are a number of different factors, and we, we use these numbers to describe all the different factors. And warfarin, or cuminin, which we mentioned, which was originally developed as rat poison in Wisconsin, uh, based on cattle that were eating certain types of grass and having ble bleeding problems, which is you know, really interesting trivia, and interesting ways of looking how drugs are developed. But nonetheless, that particular drug hits a lot of these clotting factors nonspecifically. <clears throat> And the newer drugs are now looking at factors very, very specifically. And the NOACs or the uh, novel anticoagulation agents that we were just talking about often hit factor 10. Correct. But there's also other factors that lead to the development of something called thrombus, which is required for blood clot that may be better targets for anticoagulation than what we have currently on the market. So one of the clinical trials that we're doing now is looking at something called factor 11 that we hope is more specific for preventing thrombus, but less likely to cause bleeding that may come from your glass, uh, your glass cutter person or other people that are, are involved in day-to-day -day activities, including soccer, that may put people at risk for bleeding complications or very bad bruising. Mm -hmm. So from the medical standpoint, we're trying to get better and better drugs to get those coagulation factors that are very specific for thrombus or clot that would form in the heart and less specific for other things. And then that is being weighed against this concept of using devices. So just to make sure that people understand that point of view. So, so again, take, take that information and give us a little bit more insight clinically. Um, you mentioned this a little bit before in the previous segment, but, Will will there will there be people you know over the long run that you think ultimately would be better for one approach or the other? Also realizing that atrial fibrillation is one form of developing clots, but there are certainly other medical diseases out there that are associated with the same risk factors of atrial fibrillation that also form clots. Right. Yeah. No. I think I think uh, we need both therapies, and we absolutely need both strategies. Um, the AFib patients specifically, there are people who just don't like the idea of having something inside their hearts, right? And so they want to be protected, but they don't want a device. That's your anticoagulation patient that may benefit from whatever anticoagulant that's of use in the market at that time, right? Whether it be the current NOACs or the, some of the things that are being researched as, as, we, as we just touched on. And then there are going to be patients who say, I want simplicity and I wish to have as minimal amount of meds that I could possibly be on. Uh, but I need to mitigate my risk of stroke. And that is that patient who will go towards a device route. One of the other areas of research that's occurring as it pertains to the device-related 
methods of AFib uh, thromboembolic prophylaxis or protection against stroke is, as I have spoken about before, we use AFib ablation as a tool to manage symptoms. Well, we're looking now to see, well, if at the time I'm already in the heart, if I'm already there, if I place this device at the same time that I'm in the heart, perhaps I can deal with both aspects of AFib, the symptom side and the stroke side. And so perhaps that's an area where patients will benefit with one procedure with two benefits. And so that's an area of research that's also ongoing. But you're absolutely right. Anticoagulation or anticoagulants, uh, more specifically, are not going away. We have indications for atrial fibrillation. We have indications for patients, as you have alluded to, pulmonary emboli or DVTs, clots that happen in other vascular beds, that they need to be on blood thinners. And they need something that's not going to increase their risk of bleeding but also prevents that clot from forming again in the future. So I think these areas are ripe. And I'm going to shamelessly plug, uh, you know, research and, and your organization specifically. We need patients to participate because the therapies we have today is because of the generosity and, and uh, un- willingness of other patients to participate in trials to give us the therapies that we have today. And so we need patients today to help us move that needle and, and to somewhere better. Right. And I think it's participation through research that gets us there. Right. And then it's the trials that you're participating in or others that we've done uh, in other arenas. Yeah. All I, all I consider that is amen and uh, well, well stated. And, and this is certainly my passion. So I appreciate that very, very much. So I'm, I'm going to have just a few quick fire uh, technical questions for you to answer. We just have a few minutes left and hopefully you can um, share your, your wisdom and insight. So, uh, explain to people what actually happens if you put a device in with the goal of not using anticoagulation. Does that mean that from day one you, you're off of anticoagulant, or how does that work? Explain that to people. That, that transition. Absolutely. Yep. So great question. So the delivery of the dif- device itself, it's it's performed as I mentioned, what we call percutaneously. It's done through a vein in the leg. There's no cutting involved. It takes about thirty to forty minutes to do. Generally speaking, the moment the device is deployed. Uh, its purpose is to act as a scaffold so the inner lining of the heart can overgrow it. And so there's always some inherent risk that a clot could form on the device early on. So we're not completely off anticoagulation, but what we're able to do is quickly downgrade. And so typically patients are on your agent of choice, whether it be warfarin or, or one of the NOACs. They'll come in, they have the procedure done. We're often immediately able to downgrade to an aspirin and something called clopidogrel, which is a milder form of anticoagulation. They'll continue for, at the moment, continue for six months, and then they're just on a baby aspirin after that, which has a much lower risk of bleeding than any of the potent agents. We spoke of clinical research. One of the other areas that's being explored right now is can we accelerate the elimination of the blood thinning? So maybe rather than waiting six months, is it just three months that we need for that combination therapy? And there's even another trial going on to decide whether we even need the aspirin long-term. Perhaps we don't need anything at all. So that's the areas of research that are ongoing in that space. Interesting. So thank you for that answer. The next thing that I get a lot is my atrial fibrillation patients ask me, is this congenital in any way? Is there a genetic predisposition to atrial fibrillation? And if there is, what do we need to do for family members? Yeah, that's a much more difficult question. I think genetics comes into play in the patient that is very young, and that shows up with AFib. There is some concern that there, there's some thought that there is some genetic predisposition. Screening becomes very difficult, quite frankly, because AFib, as I mentioned previously, is very prevalent. 
And in the majority of our patients who are showing up to your clinic or my clinic, they're much older and they tend to have other comorbidities, high blood pressure, obesity, so, and, and so forth. And it's hard to blame genes when you have other risk factors that are coming in. So generally speaking, from a familial standpoint, there isn't any strong screening that I tend to recommend, uh, except for, you know, if there's concern, there are those wearable devices that we talked about before that patients can utilize to kind of screen themselves, uh, including the watches that exist out there today. Uh, there's another, and, and again, I, I receive no uh, uh, reimbursement from these companies, but there's a on TV you'll see something called Cardio Mobile, which is another device that one can utilize to kind of pair with their phone and they can screen themselves. But the most important thing is it's it's identifying the problem in the individual, knowing what risk factors are so they can help inform their family members to avoid the risk factors, and then and and dealing with the risk factors of the patients themselves. Yeah. And the the issue of identifying atrial fibrillation is a huge area of research interest right now, particularly using artificial intelligence and whether or not there are certain warning arrhythmias that predict even amongst patients with atrial fibrillation who's going to have more serious complications. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, just fascinating stuff, particularly in the AI world. And I actually went to this interesting conference at the American College of Cardiology where they were talking about there are signals on the EKG that we didn't even think much about, like that the whole space on the EKG between the T wave and the P wave, we thought didn't really give us much information, but maybe that's not true. Mm. And if you have any thoughts for some of these uh, crazy ideas that are now starting to uh, be explored in clinical trials. No, I think I think uh, the the aspect of the EKG, which gives us that picture, that electrical picture of the heart and uh, intervals that we otherwise thought were non-contributory uh, and determining whether or not they give us a more insight into the electrical signals of the heart is very fascinating to me. Um, you know, I don't have direct knowledge of the EKG analysis, but I do have experience in the space of when we do ablations. So as I mentioned to you before, when we do ablations, it's anatomic, we're, we're hitting these veins, but we realize that we're not, we're not batting a thousand with that, right? And so there's AI applications on signal, intracardiac signal analysis to determine if there's areas of tissue that may be more susceptible to triggering AFib, and perhaps those are areas that should be targeted. So same concept, different application, uh, but helping us give us insight into arenas that we otherwise weren't paying much attention to. So yes, I think the application of AI as it pertains to rhythm management of the heart and cardiology in general is going to be explosive and probably one of the new renaissances of our time as it pertains to managing patients. Interesting. So the last thing I'm going to leave for discussion, and, and very quickly, because there's probably no real good answer for this, but one of the things that fascinated me is uh, something called the Coronary Drug Project that studied niacin for hypercholesterolemia. And niacin, is, we know, is a supplement, and it's pretty much fallen out of favor for treatment of cholesterol issues, with, with just a few maybe exceptions that I won't get into for now. But one of the very, very interesting things about the Coronary Drug Project study was that patients on niacin may have had a little bit less atherosclerotic complications, but they had a higher risk of atrial fibrillation, which led to an actual null effect that they, they canceled each other out. So niacin was not felt to have any cardiovascular benefits because of the offset. Any, any thoughts about that? It's a kind of crazy thing from clinical trials, but it's fun to think about and speculate. Yeah. You know, uh, I, nothing mechanistically that would make sense to me because there is this concept of inflammatory, uh, contributions to triggering atrial fibrillation. But one would think that if you have a lower atherosclerotic burden that you are actually 
mitigating inflammation as it pertains to the coronary tree. And you would think that that would actually lend towards less AFib. So I cannot explain, and nor have I read anything that would explain why you would see a signal towards higher incidence of atrial fibrillation in that particular uh, population of patients. Yeah, just an interesting little little trivia. Well, Neil, this was amazing. Uh, Thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Um, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. I learned a bunch of stuff. So um, hopefully our audience will uh, appreciate all this wonderful information. And again, thank you for being part of Two Docs Talk H Fibrillation in our MedEvidence platform. I appreciate the invitation and thank you as well. And uh, I hope your patients enjoyed the segment. Thank you. Thanks for joining the MedEvidence podcast. To learn more, head over to medevidence.info or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform.